Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My newest guest is Stephen Miles. He joins me from Washington, D.C., and is a fellow for global natural gas and energy transitions at the Baker Institute Center for Energy Studies at Rice University in Texas and senior counsel at Baker Botts Houston. Our topic is liquefied natural gas and energy, subjects about which he has considerable expertise. And we talk, among other things, about what LNG is, what we use it for, how clean it is, the impact on supply caused by current tensions with Russia, and future energy needs not only in the West, but also in the Far East and elsewhere. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. You only have to step outside in the early morning to feel that winter is not so far off, at least if you're living at about 400 meters above sea level and on about 46 degrees latitude in Switzerland, as I am. And though it's been an exceptionally mild autumn after a blazingly hot summer this year, common sense tells me that it's time to change to winter tires on my car. And as I prepare for another Swiss winter, my thoughts recently, for a variety of reasons, have turned to keeping warm and the price of keeping warm to the many in Ukraine who at a time at this time of writing of no heating. What a wretched existence that must be. And we can only hope that a good defense against Russian artillery, bombs, skillful, fast working engineers and help from allied countries relieve their suffering and mitigate in some way the cold for the suffering families, the elderly and the children in those war torn regions where fighting still occurs. But my point, or the point of my interview today, is not war, but rather energy. And in particular, a particular kind of energy, news of which has appeared in our newspaper headlines and on our radio and TV bulletins with greater frequency throughout the past year. A particular kind of energy about which I know too little, but would like to know more. And I'm referring to liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Now, LNG is an important component of our energy mix, and my guess is that many of you listening are as vague in your knowledge of what it is as I am. Now, to help me understand it, I called on the help of an old friend who is totally immersed in the subject, though that on reflection is probably an inappropriate expression. Stephen Miles is on the end of a Zoom line near Washington, D.C., and he and I go back almost 30 years when we used to work very closely together in a previous life at a time when he was based in the Middle East and I and was a trusted advisor on some crucially important business matters in that part of the world. Well, nowadays, he's a fellow at the Baker Institute Center for Energy Studies, or to give him his full title, he's a fellow for Global Natural Gas and Energy Transitions at the Baker Institute Center for Energy Studies and a senior counsel at Baker Botts, that's a prominent law firm. And that Baker in the name is the eminent James Baker who served as Secretary of State to President George H.W. Bush. Stephen Miles, welcome to the McKay interview. It's good to see you again and thanks for making time for me, Stephen. Michael, thank you so much. It is really a pleasure to have the chance to uh, be on your, your show and to speak with you again. And uh, we do indeed go way back and um, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. 
it's hard to believe when I looked at the calendar that it is approaching 30 years, Steve. But you've worn well. I hope I've worn as well as you. <laughs> Stephen, before we begin our conversation about LNG and energy, please tell me and our listeners how you got into this specialization, as you meant all those years ago when you were a lawyer, an attorney. Tell me the story. Wow. Well, um, you know, we're all a product, I guess, of uh, of our upbringing. And um, I sort of came of age in, in the 70s. It sounds, I guess I've really dated myself, uh, you know, and uh, we had a number of upheavals in the energy world at that point in time. We had... Uh, we had two uh, oil embargoes, um, 73, and of course, the Iranian oil embargo in 79. Uh, we had um, a number of geopolitical crises. Uh, we had um, uh, economic problems. And I I grew up in the United States uh, thinking, you know, we really, one of our biggest challenges is energy security, and it, it really was um, a formative event for me as a as a college student. And so I really thought I want to go into a career where I can really think about and help to to see what we can do about improving the energy security uh, of my country and and allied countries and and that's actually how it started. And I went to law school and I went to business school and I focused initially on a lot of renewable energy. It was a little early for that. The the renewable energy industries weren't really quite ready in 1980. Um, but uh, over the course of my career, I, I touched on just about all forms of energy other than nuclear and coal, um, got into liquefied natural gas uh, early on, representing, uh, um, helping Japanese companies uh, in purchasing uh, LNG supplies, uh, natural gas supplies for their country uh, from Indonesia and elsewhere. Okay. And that really continued on through the various cycles. Uh, you and I knew each other uh, during a phase when we were both busy in the Middle East. That's right. Uh, but when I came back to the United States, um, I sort of resumed, picked up my my background and in, in specialization in energy. And, uh, and really for the last 25 years, I've really pretty just done uh energy all the time oh, i was wondering how you spend your time and your personal energy between <laughs> academic work because i know you you told me that you're at rice university which is a very well-known university in in texas and the lawyering uh, you did or you used to do for that firm baker box which has deep roots in texas well uh well thank you i i, I retired from the day-to-day -day practice of law uh in january of 2020 um, I'd done it for 36 or years or so, give or take. And, um, I just, I wanted to, uh, do things, uh, do something different. I was offered a fellowship, uh, at the Baker Institute to, uh, write and think and speak on energy policy issues. And I found that, um, very interesting. Okay. And so I, I've done that and there's a lot of overlap to my old life. But uh, I don't uh, I don't practice law by the hour anymore. So okay. that's a, <laughs> some say I found an honest living finally. So, Stephen, help me with a, a, a simple question right at the beginning for my benefit and for the benefit of listeners who are not in the energy business. What is LNG, liquefied natural gas? And why does it appear to have crept into our news headlines, our news feeds so much in the past year or so? 
it, it's simpler than it sounds. The L is simply the mode of transportation for natural gas. The L is liquefied. And because natural gas is, as its name describes, a gas, it's very hard to capture and to transport. Typically, you would transport it by a pipeline. But you, you can't really do that across the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's too far, it's too deep, and things like that. So the L is is another way of transporting natural gas. That's all oh, it is. Yeah. And, that, and that is you chill it to uh, minus 161 degrees centigrade, at which point it turns into a liquid. In a liquid form, it is one six hundredth of its volume. Oh, so very small. Very small. Mm -hmm. And at that volume, it's economical to pour into specially built ships, which are essentially very expensive floating thermos bottles, and sail them around the ocean uh, to ports where there is a liquefied, where there's a regasification terminal. And essentially, in the regasification terminal, what you're doing is warming it up. And when you warm it up, it just converts back to a gas. So you've made my, my next question a little bit redundant, because I was going to ask you, typically, what is it used for or what is it better used for? But maybe that's a question which doesn't need to be asked. It's used for all the things that natural gas is used for. And so yeah. typically... You know, we we in you know in Europe and the United States, we we use it for power generation is is a very large component. Um, we use it um, we use it in petrochemicals, um, and uh, we use it for some other things as well. But power generation petrochemicals are two of the of the largest uses. Uh, some direct heating, some natural gas pipelines and heating, cooking, of course. Uh, the um, things like that. So you'll have natural gas distribution pipelines, um, city pipelines. Um, and those are the things that's used for. It's um uh it is um uh it is a fossil fuel. Yeah. Uh this makes it somewhat complex in the current uh taxonomy of carbon. It is uh, probably uh the lowest carbon emitting of the fossil fuels, certainly lower than coal or oil. Um, but that, you know, to really get a handle on that gets into questions about, all right, how much methane is being emitted as opposed to CO2. And we can certainly talk about that. And that's that's where a lot of the discussion is today, including at COP27 in Egypt. Well, just uh, enlarge on that methane. a little bit for me, Stephen, because I wanted to ask you how efficient, how clean it is compared with mm. other sources of energy. And what role LNG plays in the energy transition towards cleaner fuel and net zero? I mean, those are the questions of the day. Yeah. And um, fundamentally, I mean, I, I can tell you some basic statistics such as uh, meth methane or, or natural gas, LNG, natural gas being essentially the same, just a mode of transportation, um, emit half the carbon, half the CO2, let me be precise, of coal, uh, and uh, a third less than oil. But um, uh, the questions um, really come down to, uh, that's, that's in the consumption, sometimes it's called scope three, but that's the consumption of the, the actual burning of the, of the molecules. Um, you then have to go upstream and look at okay how how much of how much of global uh, of greenhouse gases be they methane or be they 
um, carbon dioxide or others are emitted in the actual production process upstream. And that's something that that is the world's really coming to grips with, at least the Western world is really coming to grips with. Um, I can speak most knowledgeably about the U.S. compared to some other places, so I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, tell me about that. Please. It's an area where the U.S. is spending a ton of money. It's mostly being driven, well, it's being driven both by the private sector and the public sector. Um, we don't have a carbon tax yet the way that Europe does, but we have both carbon, carbon, uh, but we have both um, reporting and regulation of methane. And we have you know, regulation at the state level and public utility level in terms of requiring customers, buyers of natural gas to go seek um, certified natural gas, differentiated natural gas. And, and so by some estimates, that's about 25% of all natural gas now that's purchased in the United States is natural gas that has been certified as meeting very clean, very low methane emitting standards. Um, and what this means is that the producers have undertaken to review and to reduce their flaring, to reduce their uh, leaks, to reduce their fugitive methane emissions, they're often called, such that there's a very, very low level of methane being released. You know, a few years ago, the common figure in the industry was, uh, well, you know, methane emissions are less than 2%. Uh, nowadays, one uh, one of the certifying entities, MIQ, there are several. There are several, and they're all very good. One of the you know gives a score of A through F. And he's a if private. You, he's a private organization. He's a private, so, yeah. private, not for profits. And you yeah. you would engage them, and they would come through, and they would put up meters and monitors, and they would uh, they would look at your policies, and they would actually do tests and. Um, uh, local and they would also do uh, do airborne tests um, and uh, and they would they look at this and they'd say if you if you meet that two percent standard and you have good policies and you uh, you measure every year you get an F. Yeah. Nowadays, to get an A, you have to be 0. 0.05 or 40 times better than what the industry said it was just a few years ago. So and how do, it's, how just, it's just a, a, an indication of how fast things are moving and how much investment is being placed into methane reduction uh, in the U.S. and, you know, in, in other, you know, I think, OECD countries. And certainly Europe has a great incentive and, and, and focus on this as well. I was going to ask you how the United States regulation stacks up against uh, Europe and other OECD countries. Are you a leader or are you in the middle of the pack? Or I mean, how does the regulation? Well, um, so I, would, I like to look at, at objective third party data. So yeah. Uh, yeah. the International Energy Agency, IEA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, published a report uh, exactly one year ago. November uh, 8, I think, uh, 2021, yeah. uh, in which they looked at, at the data they had, and that data would have been a year old at that point. So you're now missing two years of investment in methane reduction in the U.S. And among the countries they looked at, the U.S. was the third best okay. in overall methane uh, intensity from the oil and gas sector. Uh, Canada and Saudi Arabia 
were the two were the two that were better. Um, Russia and others were uh, much worse. So I'll ask um, you, um, third, Stephen. Third, how in, sorry, go on. Now after you. Uh, how how important is the LNG uh, in the energy is LNG in the energy mix of the United States today compared with the energy mix of let's say the twenty seven uh, countries of the European Union, or is it more or less the same comparing industrial country with industrial country? So LNG is of course an export from the United yeah. States. Right? So we, we were very we were uh, we were an ener- we were an LNG importer right for a while, uh, and then um, we found much more gas and ways of exploiting more gas, uh, and so we uh, for a while we wondered what are we going to do with these import terminals and and they you know sat there and then some folks some very very smart people and adventurous entrepreneurial people. Uh, said, well, let's turn them around into export terminals. And that happened starting in about 2012. So and so, so, now we so how did that, you? this was discovered or is this to do with, say, in America, the fracking industry or is it a combination of both? I don't t- quite understand how that changed from one side to the other. Yeah, I mean, you just, you, you can't have this, you can't tell this story without saying it was a result of fracking because it yeah. was, that's... Yeah. That produced this huge volume of oil and natural gas in the, in North America. And so now you export it. And now we export it. Well, we also consume it. Sure. sure. Uh, and, and to be clear, so domestically, the U.S. has dramatically reduced its own GHG footprint. So we have... You know, for, <laughs> you know, we're an interesting place from time to time. You know, we'll, we're, 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 we're difficult. We don't want to sign on to the Kyoto protocols and things like that, you know, or, you know, but then, but then we end up being the first nation that actually meets them. Well, how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen by any grand policy. It happened because we phased out 25% of our coal plants and replaced them with natural gas plants. Right. And how did that happen? Well, because we had a lot of cheap natural gas. So and that's continuing to happen in the States. So our our GHG footprint per G, unit of GDP per population or in total continues to to uh, improve significantly because we continue to reduce coal and increase replace it with gas. And Steve, Worldwide, that's the question. Worldwide, the question is. If you export more gas as LNG, are are we all replacing coal? That's what we want to do, right? Well, that's what I wanted to get onto. I wanted to move <laughs> to Asia because I read the I read that Asia has the biggest demand for LNG. I mean, I, first of all, wonder, is that correct? What I've read, and give that's me correct. some insights into the Far Eastern world of energy and the domestic and commercial needs over there in the Far East. Oh, everything you said is correct. Yeah. Uh, very substantial demands for all forms of energy, uh, both because of growth, places like like China, certainly, and just, you know, will need to continue to consume vast quantities of energy. And because um, certain places like Japan uh, are very mineral constrained, very, you know, energy constrained. And so um, the, the options are limited for them in terms of domestic resources. So, um, so there's a lot of demand for LNG and other fuels. Um, you know, the, the China's Belt and Road Initiative drove coal production 
and coal-fired, new coal-fired power plants in a way that was, I'm sorry to say, very destructive. It's not just new coal power in China. Um, you know, there were 300 new coal-fired power plants outside of China that were um, uh, approved as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, in the rest of mostly Asia, Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Um, this is, you know, it almost doesn't matter what else the rest of the world does on climate if you have that kind of coal-fired power growth. Yeah. It's just everything else gets lost in the rounding. It's just overwhelming. So that's real. That's that's job one. That's the focus. So the fundamental question for LNG and for producers and policymakers is, okay, if we if we drive LNG exports, which is what we're doing in the U.S., we're doing in Qatar, we're doing in Australia, if we drive LNG exports and increase them, are we helping to offset? Are we helping? Not I take that word back because it's a very loaded word. Are we helping to replace to reduce? coal in asia and elsewhere and are we a lot of asia or are we merely being additive we're just creating more and more energy being consumed and and if it's the latter then you still have another question which is whether you know whether whether how the ethics of energy poverty fit in that is is it a bad thing if we are creating more cheap energy to bring more people into the middle class in the developing world, or are we being elitist in saying, oh no, you all can't do that because that's not helping our environment. I mean, that's there, there, these are the debates. These yeah. are the debates. They're happening at COP27 right now. I know. Both, I just of, those, to... both of those debates are happening I right gonna, now. I'm just going to mention that because I heard, um, Particularly, also mentioned at the um, G G20 meeting in in, in Bali in yes. Indonesia that in fact China, I think I think it was your president who even said publicly that China is not doing a bad job at all in trying to bring down certain levels. So maybe there's been a change. I, of, I can't speak uh, to that. Yeah, you know, but anyway, I heard that just this morning. I can't morning, speak to that. But just but morning. but the question of energy poverty is a legitimate question. It's a yeah. debate. the the southern The southern world is. I think it's fair to say angry. Yeah. Um, no, I can when understand they hear, When they hear representatives of my country and and possibly your country and Europe say, you know, you all shouldn't make the mistakes we've made. You all shouldn't have, you know, the levels of energy and, and cheap energy and fossil fuels that we have. You you know, that makes them angry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I understand the issue on both sides. I'm, I'm merely reporting to you what's going on out there. Sure, thanks. My, well, my guest today is Stephen Miles. He's a fellow for Global Natural Gas and Energy Transition at the Baker Institute Center for Energy Studies at Rice University in Texas and a senior counsel at Baker Botts Law Firm in Houston. Stephen, may I ask you, um, coming back to my home base in Switzerland, Swiss-based companies trade significantly in oil and gas, particularly Geneva, where I am close to now, and Zug, where I used to live before I moved here. What can you tell me about Switzerland's role in the global market um, of LNG? Well, you're right, they are. Uh, and, and it's becoming a very important role. So um, Switzerland's always been um, a basis for commodity traders, and uh, and that's 
that's expanding. So you have, um, there are four companies that are very active in particular in commodity trading uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to leave one out here, but, you know, Traficora, uh, Glencore, um, Vital, and... I think Governor's one, isn't it? Oh, thank you very Governor's much. Well, you yeah. saved me. Thank yeah. you. Uh, all in the public domain. Uh, and and so, and they've, they're very active in LNG trading. And what they have done is um, helped to create the secondary market for LNG. You know, I said at the beginning, you can pour this liquid, these, this liquid onto these very expensive floating thermos bottles, and that makes it sound easy. But because so much capital is required for the LNG world, you know, these liquefaction plants can take $10 billion to $40 billion to build, and each vessel can take a third of a billion dollars to build. And you might need a dozen of them for one project. And each receiving terminal takes a billion dollars to build, just in rough. So this so kind of capital amount, makes huge it, amounts of money. Huh? <laughs> it makes it very lumpy, yeah. right? Capital-wise, um, and so LNG tends to be rather static in terms of its point-to-point, -point rather than the oil trade, where you can pump it out of the ground, put it on a rusty bucket, and <laughs> ship it anywhere. I'm, I'm not trying to offend my oil friends, but it, it's a lot easier. There's a, there's a fluid market, pun slightly intended, for the oil market that is harder in for LNG. But these traders, based in Switzerland primarily, have uh, helped to provide some liquidity, again, another pun, sorry, in making this um, uh, secondary market work. So they will come buy cargoes, strips of cargoes where... Uh, perhaps someone contracted long-term, but now they don't need them or they're slightly out of the money. And then they will put them into their portfolio and they'll sell them somewhere. So when you see diversions to Europe, for example, uh, this winter, it's last winter, right? You saw diversion cargoes diverted to Europe. That happened for in a flood, right? Immediately uh, upon the Ukraine invasion uh, by uh, by Russia. 74% of all U.S. cargoes just turned on a dime and went to Europe. 74%? 74% of all U.S. cargoes went to Europe uh, the first several months of 2022. That happened for a couple reasons. Number one is U.S. contracts are uniquely flexible in that they allow for that. They allow destination flexibility. They allow the buyer to take them anywhere. Number two, there was a lot of policy drive from the US, UK, and EU to get people to do this, fine. And number three, you had uh, arbitragers like the Swiss traders and others come in, say, hey, it no longer, we see high prices in Europe. <laughs> yes, we wanna be patriotic, but yes, we also wanna make money. We see high prices in Europe. We're gonna buy these cheap American cargoes and we're gonna send them to Europe and, um, and, and make some money there. So was, well, yeah, all all mean, of that happened. You've already sort of got into my my next question. I, I personally don't like this newly minted word weaponize, but I guess I wouldn't be wrong to say that LNG significance has sharpened, if I use that word over the last nine months. Tell me about how its price and how its availability have been affected about the, by the war in Ukraine. You've already touched a little bit on it, but go into a little bit more detail because we're going into winter here now. You must be aware of the the political issues 
in terms of fuel poverty and heating homes, um, whether it's in the United Kingdom or France or Germany. What, what's your perspective on this from with your knowledge and from your base in the United States? Of course. Well, um, several bits of, of good news. Uh, number one is it, it's great news that uh, European natural gas storage is basically full, unlike a year ago when it was uh, very, very low. I think I think you went into last winter somewhere around 20 or 22 percent full. Um, and this year, um, you know, it was somewhere around 95 percent full as of November 1. Germany had a had a mandated 95 percent. Uh, full requirement, and I think they met it. So um, you're in much better shape. Uh, another bit of good news: um, it's been warm thus far, as you as you mentioned at the top of the show. That's right. Uh, that yeah. certainly helps. Um, my understanding is that the natural gas storage that you have is sufficient quantitatively to last to hold Europe for two full months by itself, assuming no Russian natural gas coming in. So that's a that's a that's a good slug of gas, no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, your tanks are so full that you're turning away tankers. Uh, I read recently, just in the last few days, something like eighteen or twenty tankers were turned away, LNG tankers. So sorry, sorry, for the, sorry. Can I stop you there? It's just for the naive question. But when a port in a country turns away a tanker, where on earth does it go? Asia, Asia. They suck it up very quickly. Yeah, we do. So, so at the same time that we sent seventy four percent of those cargoes to to Europe, you know, where do you think they came from? I mean, I mean, not from they came from the United States, but you know, you, you robbed Peter to pay Paul, right? Yeah. So a lot of those cargoes were supposed to go to Asia, and um, uh, and so yes, our, our our brothers and sisters in Asia are very concerned. They're facing a similar situation. Russia is playing a very similar game in Asia with Japan, Korea, and Taiwan that it was started to play with Europe and Ukraine a couple of years ago. They nationalized the Sakhalin 2 LNG plant, which supplies almost 10% of Japan's LNG. Remember, Japan has almost no other fuel sources other than the natural LNG, uh, and 6% of South Korea's LNG. And they then uh, made them come in and reapply to to join, noting publicly that both of those countries were deemed unfriendly states to Russia because they had particip they were participating in the sanctions, the Ukraine sanctions against the Western sanctions against Russia. So um, this is a geopolitical game. Uh, Russia played it in Ukraine and the West and Europe, and now it's playing it in the East. And our friends in Asia are concerned and worried. So, so bearing, they're 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 happy to get these cargoes back. So bearing the politics in mind, and the what, what I my my own expression the consumer imperatives in mind, are we likely to be consuming more energy in the coming years, or less of it, or just maybe energy in a changed form regarding renewables and those other things that are coming on stream, or coming and becoming available in greater numbers all the time. More energy, well. It's hmm. we are an energy absorbing species <laughs> because of growth, because of growth, uh, because of yes, population growth, because we have a tendency to try to lift 
populations out of poverty. Yeah. You know, I was listening today, you know, a billion Chinese have been lifted out of poverty into the middle class in the last 20 years. Yeah, I heard the same um, report, Stephen. You know, is that something we're supposed to stop? No. I don't know. I no. mean, it's not for me to say, but I mean, why why should we stop that? Um, is our energy, on the one hand, you know, our energy intensity increases. We have devices we'd never had before. Um electronic devices, communication devices, thinking devices, calculating devices. On the other hand, can we be much more efficient than we have been? Absolutely. Um, is efficiency underway? Yes. I think Europe's going to lead the way on this. I think difficult times like you have been through in the last 10 months and, and you know, such as you're leading the way through now are going to lead to what's called demand destruction, which can have a positive impact. I, I, I think Europe's going to come out of this, not that you might have wanted to go through it, but I think you're going to come out of it as a leader in how to be much more efficient from an energy perspective, even than you were before. Yeah. And the rest of us are going to learn from that. Um, so uh, all of that will contribute to answering your question. I don't know what the final sort of net <laughs> result is worldwide. Uh, where natural gas and and LNG fit in, uh, you know, that's that comes down to. Uh, I think the answer in all of that has to. The short answer is batteries, <laughs> energy storage. When we get energy storage, so that it is universally available at scale on demand, then renewables will take over everywhere. and just look a bit uh, we're getting close to the end of our time now Stephen. but just have a a deeper look into your crystal ball and give me some other things that you see that you haven't had time to mention about energy and lng and europe and the and also in in, in asia what, what else do you see there that's maybe may around the corner uh, around the corner well um you know, I think it's. Uh, I think in the. Sh I think in the medium term, you know, Europe's taking the the right steps. It's doing what it can do. It's filling storage. Uh, I think the floating storage, uh, regasification vessels that Europe has added in the last six months, and you're you've scheduled you're scheduled to add the next year. These are tankers that you move in. You anchor offshore. It might be a few hundred yards offshore. It might be two or three miles offshore. Save you from having to take years to build an onshore terminal and you don't have a stranded asset then, right? So you can, you can fill, they immediately help you fill this LNG gap, this natural gas gap while you are pursuing your energy transition goals, your, your carbon taxonomy goals. And when you've got that, the next great wind farm, the next great solar field, whatever it might be, you wave goodbye to the, the floating storage vessel. It weighs anchor and it leaves. So I think you're on the right path there. I think that makes a, an awful lot of sense. Um, some onshore might make sense, but I think you're, you're really, these offshore vessels make a lot of sense. Uh, the world, is, those are sopped up now. I mean, the, the demand became really fast, but but you can, but they can, they can be built pretty quickly. Uh, you can take an existing hull and put topsides on it within a year or two. You can build a new hull within two to three years. 
anyway, it gives you a lot of flexibility. So I, I like that move for, for Europe. Um, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, renewables will continue to play um, a bigger role. I think some renewables are a, you know, a false idol. I hate to say it. I think burning wood chips actually does not help the environment. Cutting forests to burn wood chips, producing more carbon, more CO2 than fossil other fossil yeah. fuels is just actually not helpful. And counting a- that towards this, you know, Paris climate goal achievement is just really cynical. So I'm yeah, there's hope, a big debate about that's that something some that disappears. So I, I, my thing is people say, well, what's the solution? And I say, avoid bumper stickers. Yeah. Any, any energy solution you see on a bumper sticker, avoid it. It's, yeah. you know, this is, it's a deep, you know, we use I a mean, lot of energy as a species and um, none of these things are easy, but, it, you know, we can get through all this together. We can pursue climate and energy security goals together, both of these. And, um, you know, let's just... You know, let's let's avoid uh, let's avoid hypocrisy where we can, and let's in, do the best we can everywhere. In, and I think it'll in, work out. In brief summary, Steve, don't be glib, and uh, these things yeah. do take time. Stephen, I knew that I would learn a lot from you, and you've not disappointed me. You never did, anyway. Thanks for answering all my questions so clearly and so completely. My guest today has been Stephen Miles. He's a fellow for Global Natural Gas and Energy Transitions at the Baker Institute for Center for Energy Studies at Rice University in Texas and a senior counsel at Baker Botts in Houston. Stephen, thank you. It's been great to see you. Great talking to you again. Michael, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.